I want to talk to you about commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is Lord, whether you're committed or not. And uh, that's just the reality. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is uh, above all, uh, great and mighty. Jesus is, he's, he's awesome. Okay, he's, he's great. But you can enter into that awesomeness by having King Jesus actually be king of your life. It's possible for Jesus to be king, but him not to be king in your life. Just like, you know, there might be a, there's a king in Britain. Well, he's a king in Britain, but he's not a king in my life. That's outside my, the realm of who I am. But if I were to make myself a subject of that king, if I were to bring myself in and say, I pledge my loyalty to that king, then he becomes a king in my life. So it's very possible for you to be here and for you to even believe that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, but for you not to yourself be entering into that, that is committed to, be committed to his rulership, his leadership, his kingship uh, in your life. And so what we're going to do today is try and uh, bring ourselves to a place of fresh surrender. Now maybe you made some kind of commitment to the Lord as a young person, and uh, that's awesome. But the commitment you made as a young person is not going to hold you today. And I'm going to explain that to you and talk to you about it. You need to have a fresh commitment to the, today to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this idea of commitment and what does it mean to commit to something. And uh, there were a couple different principles that kind of jumped into my mind. One of them is this. When I commit, there is no graceful way to turn back. When you commit to something, there's no graceful way to turn back from that. I remember uh, uh, when I was a kid in my uh, school, uh, periodically there would come a little craze that would come into the school where um, you'd be going to sit in your chair and somebody would pull the chair out from underneath you. Anybody ever have that experience? If you, if you went to a public school, I'm sure you must have. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, it, you know, it was just like, it was just like a, 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 it, would, it would just come in seasons. Sometimes you'd get a whole grade. It wouldn't happen, you know. But, but somewhere in there, every, every few grades, this craze would come in where people would be trying to catch other people and pull the chair out from underneath them. And when you knew that was happening, if you, you knew that, you could think to yourself and you could say, okay, when I go to sit down, I'm going to like really kind of prepare myself and I'm going to sit in such a way that I maintain control at all time, all the way down to the seat, right? And uh, if I don't feel a seat there, I jump up. Aha, you know, you didn't get me. You know, I, 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 was, I, I protected myself in this situation. But if you just went to sit, and you committed yourself to the chair, and the chair was not there, there was no easy way back from that situation. Are you with me? You were down, bam, sprawled out on the ground. And that's the way commitment is. Commitment, there, there is no graceful way, really, to turn back when you make a commitment. Another thing I would say about commitment is there's no balance in commitment. You are or you aren't committed. It's impossible to be a little committed. Right? Are you committed? Yeah, a little bit. No, that's, you can't do that. It's like, it's like being... What did you say? 
I want to hear that. <laughs> Half pregnant. That's, there you go, right there. It's just like that. You, you know, you just, you are or you aren't. It's not a, it's not a little kind of, a, kind of experience where this is going to be a very interactive service. I can see that right now. <laughs> to almost commit is not to commit at all, right? You can't, there's no balance in commitment. You are or you are not committed. It's like, um, I don't know if you've ever tried to, you know, pour something and you tried to hit that perfect place in your pouring where just the little amount that you wanted to come out would come out and you were kind of like in that teetering between am I going to pour or am I not going to pour? Is it coming out or is it not, you know, do I need to tip it a little more, you know, kind of a thing? And some people, that's where the way their commitment is. They're kind of like, well, I'm, I'm kind of committed. I'm sort of committed. I, you know, I want to, but I'm not, you know, maybe I wouldn't, but no, I can. And they, and they don't really commit. You cannot be partially committed. Can't happen. Here's another thing about commitment. Commitment makes me vulnerable. When you commit to something, you become vulnerable. Uh, this time of year, it's uh, football season, and my wife is like a football nut. I, I just endure it, but she loves to watch football. We watch football during this season, several evenings of the week. And, and uh, um, you know, with football, when you, when you watch it, I like to try and learn something from it when I'm watching it. Uh, when you watch it, you'll see sometime this moment, the one of the receivers will be rushing across the middle of the field while the quarterback is trying to get ready to make a shot. And, uh, and you'll see this moment where the, the quarterback will shoot the ball at this person that's going through the pack of people out there. And the receiver has this moment, you can see it in their eyes, where they have to make a decision. Am I going to commit to the ball or am I going to try to protect myself because they realize about three people are about to smash them to smithereens, right? And that, you know, everybody knows where the ball is going. They're all aimed at that person. They want to hit him so hard that he drops the ball, right? And, uh, and, 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 and so you see this moment. Is, is he going to protect himself or is he going to commit to grab the ball, extend himself, give everything that he can to get a hold of the ball? Because the reality is if he commits, he becomes vulnerable. And that's, that's a reality about commitment. If you commit to something, you become vulnerable. And another thing I would say about commitment is this. Commitment always cost me something. There's no such thing as a free commitment. Commitment always cost me something. If I, if I commit to a certain girl, you know, it, it shuts out all kinds of other opportunities and situations and things like that. I've committed to that relationship. If I, if I commit to something, you know, I think of, uh, I was here early and the different worship teams that were preparing and I think of all the time that they put in practice and preparation and all that. Why don't we give a hand to those teams that do that? That's awesome, isn't it? They committed to something, but in committing to something, it always cost you something. You have to give up to go up. There's, some, there's always a price tag that's involved in commitment. And uh, I want us to look today really at, at Jesus' call to you for commitment. And so if you, you have your Bibles, look in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to look at verse 25. Luke chapter 14, and uh, 
We're going to start out with verse 25. This is biblical commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ as defined by Jesus, okay? I'm not going, I'm, you know, I, I, this is not Mike's idea of what commitment is. This is the Lord Jesus defining for you what it means to be committed to him. Now, one of the things that's interesting because the passage starts out and it says, you know, there's this crowd following Jesus and Jesus turns to the crowd and starts saying some things that it would be easy for you to interpret as very harsh. He doesn't seem to be concerned about people leaving or people not uh, responding to uh, what he's saying. The things he's saying are just flat out. He's just saying it honestly. He's just putting it forward to you today. And he's calling you and he's saying to you, do you want to commit to me? And then he's telling you, this is the price tag of commitment. This is what commitment looks like. So Luke 14, starting with verse 25 And he starts out by talking about loving Christ above all in life. Now, this is what it says, verse 25. Now, great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't even sound to me like it should be in the Bible, that verse. Right? When you read that verse, I mean, tell me you don't react to that. You read that verse, you go, you go who is this? What is this person talking about? What, what, you know, what is the, you know, but this is Jesus. Look, look, look at these words. Listen now. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus starts right out, and he says, look, let's get this, let's let's lay the ground rules down here right now, and understand this. He says, if you are going to commit yourself to me, every other relationship in your life has to be subservient to that commitment. Your love for your mother, your love for your father, your love for uh, your wife, your love for your children, every other relationship in your life. This is the price tag. You you know, you came here to Elam, you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, I want to go where he wants me to go, I want to do what he wants me to do. Every, he says, every other relationship in your life has to be brought into a place of subservience to your commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And the the truth is that many relationships simply do not work if they are not placed in a place of subservience to Jesus Christ. You know, romantic relationships. You know, the worst thing that can ever happen is for you to... Uh, get into a relationship with somebody where you see them as kind of your completeness. They're going to fulfill you. Sounds like such romantic language and everything else. But Jesus says, you know what? There's only one person who can fulfill you, and that's me. He says, I'm the one who's going to be your fulfillment. And if you try to find your wholeness, if you try to find your completeness in another human being, you are always going to end up in a terrible circumstance and situation. 
And he's telling you, he says, you have to understand that relationship has to be placed below your relationship with me. I can tell you from experience, it's impossible to be a parent if you love your children more than you love God. Because there will come a time when your love for God will come in conflict with your love for your children. You know, your child comes home and, oh, you know, Dad, there's a big party Friday night. Everybody's going to be there. It's going to be absolutely awesome. And, and uh, you know, I want to be there too. Isn't it going to be great? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Tell me about that party. Who, 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 whose house is it at? Who's it? Oh, it's at Billy's house. His parents are gone for a week, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay, uh, well, who, who are going to be like adult people there? I don't know. If, you know, I, you, know we, you can trust us, Dad. We're just, you know, we just, we're just going to get together. It's just going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't feel so good about that. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think... Uh, I don't think you should be there. I said, I don't, I don't feel good about it. Dad, I have to be there. Everybody is going to be there. If I'm not there, I'll be like excluded from everything. You know, well, okay, I hear you. I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying there, but uh, I don't see it. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't say yes to that. I can't. Ah! You know, door slams, you know. I hate you. Now, if, if my number one love is my child, when that door slams, I rush to the door and I go, don't worry, honey. We'll work it out for you. You know, I, I, I'll, come up with a, I'll come up a way with a way that you can go. You know, I'll, I'll make it happen. You know. If I love the Lord first, I, I have to look at her and say, honey, I love you with everything on this earth, but I... I can't, I would, be, I would be breaking covenant with the Lord if I just said, you can go to this thing. You with me? It's impossible for me to be a good parent if I love my child more than I love God. It's impossible for you to be a good husband or a good wife if you love your spouse more than you love God. The, the, the relationships break down and become distorted if we don't follow Jesus' simple command to, 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 to just make him absolutely first, even above your own life, he says. Even above your own life. You would think, you would think I need to take care of myself. That's a big thing, you know, self-care, you know. Now, you know, we, I need to take care of myself. But Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything will be added to you. I believe in self-care. I believe that, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to care for ourselves if we put everything focused on others or this kind of thing. I, I believe, but he says, no, he says, it's not self-care, it's caring first for me. He says, even above your own life, I expect you to look to me even above your own life. It was a choice between your life and my will and my desires and my direction for you. I'm asking you, will you lay it down? Will you lay your will, your way, your hope, your ambition, your dream, your approach, will you lay it down? And then it goes on, verse 27, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me 
cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus is saying this, the cross is not a cute little earring that somebody wears or a little chain around their neck with a little tiny cross on it. It's not something that sits on tops of buildings to tell us that these buildings are dedicated to God. The cross at this time is the instrument of of punishment that is used particularly by the Romans. They take people that they're trying to to stop and, and, and keep them from doing their thing. And their, their way of punishment is they nail them to a cross. Or they tie them to a cross. Leave them out in front of everybody. Sometimes there were, were whole roads that just were, were populated one after another with crosses down the whole road where people were uh, suffering in agony. Jesus wasn't the only person to die on a cross. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you were carrying your cross, you were on your way to a horrible death. It was, the equiv- it was like an electric chair, right? Um, your reputation, if you were carrying a cross, your reputation was absolutely nothing. I, I've been in Israel, I've been on streets in Israel where, you know, the, there's a street called the Via Della Rosa. It's the, it's the walk that Jesus took carrying his carrying his cross. And there are sections of the street that are no wider than from me to the front row right here right now. And you can imagine a a man uh, carrying a cross and you can imagine the Roman guard around him and 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 coming down the road and and the crowd of people on the on the street having to back against the walls that were there as as they they would come down the road. I'm telling you something right now. If you were backed against that wall, the last thing you would want to have happen would be that criminal who was carrying his cross that was coming down that path to stop and look up at you and go, hey, Mike. Right? You would be like, I don't know him. I don't know who he is. I don't, you know, I, 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 you know I, why? Because that person was of no reputation. As a matter of fact, they were, their reputation was so negative, it could have sucked your reputation in and suck it right down the drain. You would, not, you would not want to be identified with that person. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross, who's ever not willing to have their reputation knocked down. I mean, we live in a culture right now, you say you're a Christian, and you are, I mean, your reputation. I just read something today that was so encouraging. Uh, it was actually Fox News was talking about um, Iran, and they were saying that Iran today is experiencing one of the greatest Christian revivals that has happened in history. This is news, the, the, the news, one of the greatest Christian revivals that is happening that people are realizing, you know, just, that's just, I'm sorry, I just got off on that. I, I, you know, if you were, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In our culture today, you say you're a Christian. People, they have a list of things they feel that they know about you. You're a homophobe. You're this. You're that. You're, you know, you're a hater. You know, a hater you're, you know, all this kind of stuff. And see, the question is, in this culture, in this day, have you embraced the cross? 
Would you be willing to look somebody in the eye and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Or would you, do you find yourself kind of wanting to go, uh, um, you know, I, I'm interested in the Bible, you know. Uh, I've read a couple things that seem interesting that Jesus said, you know. Kind of, but to say instead, no, I, I, you know, l- listen, what you're thinking about Christ, I don't believe is what Christ is saying and what he's doing. And, and I'm telling you right now, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? Are you, would you, see, to me, that, that, that's, this is what, whoever does not carry his own cross, whoever is not willing to lay his reputation down and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he says, for which, this is, this is Jesus. I'm just reading, this is all, if you've got a red letter version Bible, this is all red letters right now we're reading. This is Jesus' words to you. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is saying something to her. He says, says, listen, this commitment to follow me cannot be an emotional commitment decision. He's saying this commitment has to be, he says, who does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. He's saying, he says, I'm not looking for you to get a tear in your eye. I'm not looking for you to, you know, uh, get some, have some kind of, I'm looking for you to make a cold, calculated evaluation of the situation and to say, I have made the decision, hell or high water, I am following Jesus Christ. I am going to do his will. I'm going to go where he wants me to go. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. I'm going to say what he wants me to say. I, I, am, I, I, I am following him. I'm giving my all to Jesus Christ. He says, you've got to count the cost. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it, begin to ridicule him. And the point is so important that he repeats it. He says it again if you look in verse 31, but he uses another story to say the same thing. He says, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. He says, what king? See, if you're going to go into a fight where there's a pretty good chance you're going to lose, you've got to really count the cost. If I'm going into a fight that I think I'm going to win, you know, then okay, no problem. But if I'm going into a fight that I think, you know what? We could give everything in this fight, and we could still lose. Before a person goes into that kind of fight, they sit down and they count the cost. We lose, it could mean our homes are gone, it could mean our families are gone, it could mean everything is lost. Are we sure we want to fight this fight? Would it be better to just try and get along, go along to get along? Are we sure that we really want to go for it? 
He says, he says, he says, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. He says, are you, he's saying, look, look at this situation. You're looking, they got 20,000, you got 10,000. Maybe that's the way you feel about your, where we are with Christ right now in our culture. You know, everybody's going the other way. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing that. He's saying, okay. He says, he says now look at that. He says, now make a decision. Are you going to fight? Are you going to commit? Are you going to get into this thing? It's count of cost. And then Jesus goes on and he says, in verse 33, he says, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. I don't know where you thought I was going to you know, talk to you about what it means to be the lordship of Jesus Christ, where I was going to get the scriptures to talk about it. But Jesus, you know, he, he, he laid it right out for us. He says, all your, why is it so important that your possessions be surrendered to Jesus Christ. The reason it's so important is this, is that all possessions have gravity to them. Just like, uh, just like planets and, and everything, th things of matter, things like that, all those things, they have gravity. They have a pull that's related to them. And every possession you have has a pull on your life. I remember years ago I was... Uh, I'm making another one, another attempt to try and uh, uh, care for my kids and everything like that, and I decided I was going to build them a swing set, get them a you know make a nice little swing set for them there, and I, I you know went and got the swing set and it was filled you know it was all these metal bars and and had to bolt it all together and I just dedicated the whole weekend to putting this swing set together. Finally, I got the swing set over with. And I was feeling pretty good about it. The kids were out there playing in the little swings and all that kind of thing. And then I looked at the last page of the instructions. And this is what it said. It said, it said uh, now after you've completed the swing set, every week you need to tighten up, bolt this, 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 and this bolt. And uh, every month you need to lubricate this, 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 and this. And every three months you need to... And I read the last play. I looked at my wife. I said, I, uh, I thought I bought a swing set. I bought a life commitment. <laughs> you know, the, uh, and that's the way possessions are. All possessions have a gravity to them. And Jesus says the only way you can avoid the pull of your possessions is by absolutely surrendering them to Jesus Christ. You know, when I came in as president of the school, the first, uh, in the first year, the school was going, it, it was in such a bad situation going down that we, that we were running out of money. And uh, I said to the Lord, Lord, what should I do? You know, what, what, what should I do? I, I, I tapped every single thing I could think of to tap. There was nothing more I could do. We were just out of, out of cash. And then I felt the Lord said to me, how about your house? 
And so I, I went and got a line of credit on my house, and I gave $35,000 to the school so that the, that the school could keep going. And when I did that, I was doing, in my heart, I was saying, so therefore, no one of you, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. My house does not belong to me. My car does not belong to me, literally. <laughs> my, my, um, <laughs> my, my, um, you know, my, my family does not belong. It's not my family. It's not my, all of these things belong to God. And he's left me as a steward of these things. They only have meaning to the relationship that they are committed to the purposes and the call and the destiny that God has for them. This is what discipleship is. This is what it means to commit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your bank book, everything is placed under and subject to Jesus Christ. And then he says a statement Jesus ends this little passage with a statement that has been very confusing to commentators for many years. They haven't quite understood what it meant. And unless you understand the historical uh, situation, it doesn't seem to make sense. As a matter of fact, it seems actually contrary to the facts. This is what it says, verse 34. He says, therefore, salt is good. Now, what's he been talking about this whole time? What has he been talking about? What have we been talking about this whole time? Huh? What do you think? Somebody? Huh? Commitment, right? So when he starts giving us this analogy, therefore salt is good. Salt in this, this analogy, it, it, he's using it as a, as a symbol of commitment. So look what he says. He says, therefore salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned again? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt is the attitude of total commitment. So, but the problem with the passage is it doesn't seem to make sense because... It says, therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? The problem with this passage is this, is that salt never becomes tasteless. You know, I can take a container of salt, I can put it on the shelf, come away for 10 years, come back again, and pour it out, and what do I have? Salt. You never hear anybody go, that salt went stale. You know, that salt is, you know, that salt is bad. You know, and that's why the passage did not make any sense because the salt never becomes tasteless. The salt never changes. It just is what it is. It's salt. And so this passage, therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or the manure pile. And so people did not understand what Jesus was talking about. What was he talking about until they did a little more research into the times. And they discovered something. Salt was a very valuable commodity. Because it was a very valuable commodity, when it was sold, it was often cut. 
What do I mean by this? So, so what would happen is I'm a merchant. I would go buy some salt, and I would get this container of salt. I would bring it in, and I would say, okay, I want to sell this salt, but I want to get the most I can from it. If I took 5% of this salt and mixed in something that looked like salt but was not salt, nobody would be able to tell the difference when they were shaking it out. It would still be salty and everything else. So I'll mix in this 5%, this something that looks like salt but isn't salt, and it'll be fine. I'll sell it, and I make 5% more profit because of what I've done here right now. And then a person would buy the salt. They would bring the salt home. And they would say to themselves, they would say, you know, uh, my teenage kids, they will just use this salt right up kind of a thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put like 5% of this other thing into the salt that looks like salt, but it's really not salt. And they would cut the salt again. And every time the salt changed hands, often it would be cut a little bit in this way. Until finally, somebody shakes the salt out, and they go, this doesn't, even, this doesn't taste like salt. There's no salt. I don't, I don't taste anything salty here. What's, you know, what's going on? See? The salt had become compromised over and over and over again until finally it was not salt at all. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is he saying? He's saying that your commitment can get cut. It gets cut. You know, you may have, you know, maybe when you were 14, you got down on your knees and you prayed a prayer and you gave your life to Jesus and it was a total passionate heart thing. Your salvation is secure. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your commitment can get cut. What happens? This little thing happens, that little thing happens. But think of it this way. This, this would be a good way for you to think about it. How many of you believe that children can get saved? So let's say we have a little five-year-old and we pray with that little five-year-old and that little five-year-old asks Jesus into their heart, right? When that little five-year-old becomes a 10-year-old, how many of you think that the commitment that they made as a five-year-old will be enough to sustain them when they're a 10-year-old? What do you think? Not, I'm not asking, is Jesus, what Jesus has done, is that, that's, that's authentic, that's genuine, that's secure. But they're entering into and experiencing, is the commitment of a five-year-old enough to sustain them when they're 10 years old? Okay, how about this? How about when that 10-year-old becomes a 15-year-old? Do you think the commitment that you made as a 10-year-old will be enough to hold you when you're a 15-year-old? What do you think? No, it's not. Something, see, what happens, every all the way through your life, as you change, every time you change seasons, when that 15-year-old becomes a 21-year-old, every time you change seasons, the salt gets cut. And if you don't renew the commitment, if you don't, if you don't freshly give yourself to the commitment, 
What you, what you experienced when you were 19 is not going to be with you when you're 31. It will become compromised little by little by little. Every new season gives you new temptations, and it gives you new opportunities, and it demands a new commitment. I remember... Uh, I was, uh, I had moved back here. To, I'd, I had gone to school here. I uh, went to Oswego, New York, started basic up there, and was there for four years. And then I came back here in 1980, and uh, my uh, goal was to use this as the base to begin to see the basic college ministry spread out all over the place into different situations. And and uh, I actually lived, the building that's now the library and the dormitories that are in the back, those were actually apartments back in those days. And I lived in one of those apartments with my wife and our first child, uh, Toby. And uh, 19, it was around 1984, and I bought my first ever, and uh, for many, many years later, is the first new car I ever bought, a 1984 Nissan Sentra. Now, I, I grew up um, uh, in the inner city of Utica, New York. My mother never had a car. Uh, the, um, you know, we, we, if you wanted to go someplace, you took a bus or you, uh, you got a cab or something like that. Um, so never had a car, never had anything like that. So this was, this was like a big deal. I had Mike Cavanaugh brought up in the inner city I had a car. I got the car because I was traveling a lot for ministry and stuff like that. I, I have a new car. And I, I, I'd go out there and right out here in front of the library. It was a stone lot back then, but I'd polish that car up, you know, and clean it all, make it looking real nice and things like that. And, you know, it was my, it was my car, you know, 1984. I'm feeling pretty good, you know, 1984. Nissan Sentra wagon, wagon even, wagon. It was, it was a pretty awesome little vehicle. So I'm out there, and I'm uh, cleaning the car and doing nice things, and Toby's out there. And Toby's out there. He's, he's uh, um, uh, playing around and playing in the rocks and things like that. And somehow he gets it in his mind, he wants to come tell me something. He comes running toward me at the car, his little fingers filled with stones. And he, uh, he trips and he falls into the car and slowly slides down the car with his little hands full of stones. And I was like, ah! <laughs> Toby! Ah! Toby, go in the house right now. Go in the house right now. I wanted him to go in the house because I was afraid of what I was going to do, you know, or what I might say or what, you know, what was going to happen. So he runs into the house, you know, and he's in, in tears and runs into the house. And I'm, I'm looking at the car and I'm going, look at the car, you know, and I'm trying to wipe, see if I can wipe the scratches out and all this kind of thing. And, I'm, 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 and so as I'm, late, as I'm looking at the car, the Lord comes to me. And uh, he says to me, he says, whoa. He says, that was a surprise. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, uh, that you like that car more than you like your son. And I said, I do not like this car more than I like my son. That is absolutely not the case. And he said, well, you know, from what I saw, it sure looked like you liked the car more than you liked your son. 
I said, I said, okay, okay. I just stopped. I said, Lord, I said, this car belongs to you. It was easier to give him the car now because it was all scratched up. <laughs> when it was all nice, there was something in me that, you know what I mean, that was pulling it to me. Now that it was scratched up, I said, okay, Lord, I, I give you this car. I, I put it in your hands. I give, I give this to you, see, which should have been happening all along, right? Maybe it wouldn't have gotten scratched if I had done that a little earlier, right? What, what was I doing? I was acknowledging his lordship, his rulership. There was no possession that had more value to me than he had to me. And, and I, I, I placed that car under him. See, now, what you find in life is that this happens, this process that I'm describing to you happens over and over and over again. It will happen to you with your, ro your romance life. It'll happen to you with your marriage. It'll happen to you with your career. You'll get into, even if your career is ministry, you'll get into a place where, you, where you're tempted to value your uh, career above your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will happen to you with your children. It's happening to me right now with my grandchildren. Am I going to love them more than I love? I have to, every new season of life, gives me a new opportunity and a new temptation and calls on me to make a fresh surrender, right? Even, you know, even the next season for me, talking about me stepping down as the, as the president of the school all at once now, I, I've got all kinds of new things, new stuff I have to look. I got to say, okay, I have to give this time. You know, some people, they think, well, you know, you're retired. Do what you want to do now, baby. You've been doing what everybody else wanted up to this time. Now you do what you want to do. But i got a problem. My life has been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And when I turn 65 or 66 or whatever it is, I don't, I, that doesn't change. Those days are as much his as, as the earliest days of my life. I have to surrender again to the lordship of Jesus Christ and surrender every moment, every, just like you. I'm looking at you and I'm saying to you, you need to give him your 20s. You need to give him your 30s. You need to give him your 40s. You need to give him every season of your life. Give him the very best that you have. Every new age, every new season, every new opportunity faces you with a new temptation. When my kids were growing up, <clears throat> I would tell them the story. We would tell them a lot of stories of different missionary heroes and people, but I would tell them the story of the Moravians. I don't know if you've heard much about the Moravians. In 1727, a powerful revival broke out, and a prayer meeting began that literally ran in an unbroken chain 24 hours a day for 100 years. It was the 100-year prayer meeting, very famous. And out of this incredible revival, a passion was birthed to bring the gospel to the whole world. And this group called the Moravians had learned the secret of loving the souls of men was found in loving the Savior of men. In October 1732, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor bound for the Danish West Indies. And two men were on board, one a potter and the other a carpenter. And both had been discipled uh, in this movement. 
And they were skilled speakers who had come to a decision. And the decision that they made was this. That they would sell themselves into slavery so that they could go to the West Indies and preach the gospel to the slaves that were in the West Indies. It was the only way they could get the money to, to make the trip. So they sold themselves into slavery. And on that morning, as the fog is in the air, and they're at the shoreline, and that ship is getting ready to pull away, all of their friends and loved ones came to the dock to wave goodbye to them. And as they were there on the, on the deck, they were, they were waving, waving goodbye. And they knew that every person in that crowd had a question in their mind. And the question that those people had was this. Why are you doing this? Why would you sell yourself into slavery to be able to go and preach the gospel in the West Indies? Why would you do something like that? And the two men, as they were on the side of that ship, as the boat pulled away, they, they cried out a cry that has gone across church history. And they cried out to their friends, and this is what they said, to win for the Lamb the reward of his suffering. That's why we're doing what we're doing. To win for the Lamb the reward of his suffering. And they were willing to give everything that they could do that. Years later, in my life, right, my son, Toby, went to China. Uh, he's been here for the last couple years here now, but, but he was gone for one of the seasons he was gone. He was gone for over 10 years, but one of the seasons he was gone was over five years. And uh, during that time, uh, one of our grandchildren was born there, and we had never even seen them. And he contacted us. He said, look, the family's going to come home. I'm going to be home for five weeks, and uh, we're going to come right to Lima, and we're going to be there. And we were all so excited. It was during the summer, and they came and brought the grandchildren, uh, my grandchildren with them, and, and we just had... Uh, my son Todd was here in the area, and Tracy was here, and we just had the most fantastic five weeks of summer. It was just, it was just, we just went to parks and had cookouts and hung out and did, did all kinds of things. They were involved in some weddings while they were here, and we just had the greatest time. And it was coming down to the end of the five weeks. It was the Sunday before the Tuesday that they were going to go back to China. And uh, we were all at our house, and we were uh, um, uh, hanging out that afternoon with a cookout and things like that. And finally, it was getting toward evening, and my son Todd got up, and none of us were expecting what was about to happen. My son Todd got up, and he said, uh, he said hey, Toby, he said, uh, I have to leave on a business trip on Monday, so I won't be here Tuesday when you leave. He said, so this is goodbye for us. And like nobody was thinking about goodbye. You know, that was Tuesday's business. This was Sunday's business. But he said, this is, this is goodbye for us. And he walked across the room and they began to embrace. And then they started crying. And then everybody started crying. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. We just all started crying. And, uh, and, and uh, 
So finally, they all, everybody leaves and goes, and I'm sitting at home with my wife. And I look at my wife and I say to her, I can't go to the airport Tuesday morning. There is no way I can do that. I said, I, I, it's just, it's just too, it's just too much. I can't do it. I said, I'll say goodbye to them tomorrow and stuff like that, but I can't go to the airport on, on Tuesday morning. And uh, so, uh, you know, Monday came around, Monday night came around. We went over to the, where they were staying and said goodbye to the kids and just making it fun and all that kind of stuff. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to the airport. I cannot do it. Uh, you know, my little, at that time, little, little Maya was like about, you know, five years old. She was just a little four or five kind of looked like, looked like Shirley Temple. Have you ever seen a Shirley Temple movie? These real curly blonde hair and stuff like that. And she was old enough that she was getting this idea. She understood that going back to China meant she was leaving where, you know, she had had five weeks of being the queen of the universe, right? You know what I mean? Five weeks of being the, you know, the absolute treasure of our hearts. And uh, she was old enough to go, you know, I'm not so sure I want to go. And I could just picture, I could just see me at the airport, and she, Toby's carrying her, and she's going, Grandpa, Grandpa, save me! Don't let him take me! You know, <laughs> and I, I would have been, you know, I would have been totally wiped out. So, so we tried to be as positive as possible Monday night, saying goodbye, and, you know, all the all stuff. And, and, uh, and, and, and then we came back to the house, and... Uh, and the next morning came, and I didn't go to the airport. My wife went. I, I, I just couldn't go. I, I didn't go to the airport. And as I was sitting in the chair in my living room, I got a text. And it was from Toby. And this is, this is what he said to me. He said, about to leave for Shanghai. Why do we do this again? And then he wrote, oh, yeah. To win for the Lamb the reward of his suffering. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll miss you, Dad. And he, he gave back to me the stories that I told him when he was little. To win for the Lamb the reward of his suffering. Now, look, I don't know what God is dealing with you about. In that moment, at that time, it, for me, it had to do with yielding my children back again. I had to make a fresh commitment. It was a new season. It was a new time. And I had to surrender them again to the Lord. I don't know what the Lord may be speaking to you about. But I would venture to say that on this night, that there is something that God is saying to you. Will you commit to the Lordship? of Jesus Christ? Will you surrender your 20s into my hands? Will you place every relationship, every dream of a relationship, every hope that you have, will you place it under my lordship and my rulership? Will, will, you, will you take every possession that you own, everything that is holy and sacred, everything that's hidden, maybe you have something hidden away in some drawer someplace right now, we would take every possession and you would surrender it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give it all 
into his hands. It is an absolute foundation stone for God to, 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 to use you and to do the things that he wants to do in your life. It all begins with the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it himself. I haven't said to you anything that Jesus himself has not said to you. He's saying to you, if you are going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you have got to lay these things down. Half a commitment is no commitment at all. You've got to place it all under. Now, I'm not saying he's going to, what he's going to do with you. You know, some of you are afraid. You know, you're afraid to say, uh, Lord, uh, it's all yours because you're going to say, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to send me to some nasty mission field is what he's going to do with me. I don't want to go. And you're afraid to give him permission. I promise you, right, I can't say where he's going to send you or what he's going to do with you or anything like that. But I will, I will tell you this. Whatever it is, you have been created for this purpose. And you will find the greatest fulfillment and the greatest joy in doing what he wants you to do. But you will never find out what that is if you don't commit yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Delight yourself in the Lord, it says, and he will give you the desires that are in your heart. He will, he will make clear, he'll put literally his desires inside of you. But it all begins with a commitment to the lordship the rulership of Jesus Christ. Let's just bow our heads right now. Can we do that? I don't know what he's talking to you about. Such, it's so crazy when we're dealing with lordship issues because the things that he's speaking to you about might be nothing. They might mean nothing to me. He might be talking to you about the amount of TV you watch or the video games you watch or your Netflix subscription. Or, you know, I, I, don't, I can't tell you what he's talking to you about, but I can tell you this. Every new season calls for a fresh surrender. You're at the beginning of a powerful new season of your life. And I'm not diminishing at all any of the commitments you've made in the past, but I'm just telling you it's not enough. There's a fresh thing that the Lord is asking. If you sense the Lord speaking to you, maybe about even a specific issue, I just want to invite you to come right out of your seat, come to the front, and make an altar right now. You know, this, this stage up here, even for me, I... 45 years ago, I, I wept tears at this stage. And this area is like a spiritual stronghold where people have consecrated themselves to the nations and to the purposes of God and to, and, and to, and to the Lord himself. They've consecrated themselves again and again and again. Many thousands over the years have gone in, uh, to do great works and make great... But it all began 
with a moment of commitment. And I just am calling you right now. If you are ready to freshly commit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, just come make an altar up here. We're going to take some time and just surrender, offer ourselves. Jesus. It's a new day. There's a new commitment. There's a new thing that God is wanting to do. There's a fresh thing that God is wanting to do in all of our hearts. Lord, we commit to you. We commit to your lordship, to your rulership. We commit to you, Lord Jesus. Now, whatever that thing is that the Lord is speaking to you about, just just don't make any promises to the Lord. Don't say, oh, Lord, next time I'll do this or next time I'll do that, because you can't keep any promises. You You don't have the ability. But just offer yourself to him. Just commit, say, Lord, I I just give myself to you. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. I, I surrender myself afresh to you. I give myself afresh to every relationship, every hope for a relationship. I give myself afresh to you, Jesus. I offer myself to you. Oh, precious Spirit of God. Don't make promises to him. Don't don't tell him how you'll be better and you won't make mistakes that you've made in the past and how you'll do this and do that. None of that matters. He's going to work with you about all that stuff. What he's looking for right now is this the simple commitment the simple giving of yourself to his kingship, to his rulership, giving him the right to call the shots. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. By your grace, I'll be what you want me to be. I'll say what you want me to say. Lord, I recognize that my life is not my own, that I'm only a steward of these days, that I'm a manager that it all belongs to you. And I want to give myself afresh to you right now. I recognize this won't even be the last time, Lord. I know because there are going to be new opportunities and new temptations and new things that are going to come. But today, I want to make sure that the decks are absolutely clear. Today, I want to make sure that the transaction is absolutely complete. Today, I want to make sure that the container is full of salt full of salt. It hasn't be, it isn't being cut by my wants or my desires or or the temptations that are around me. It's not being cut by the gravity of possessions. It's not being cut by my dreams of relationship. It's not being cut by any of these things. It's all yours today, Lord. It's all yours today. I offer myself My life is not my own. It's been bought with a price. I've been purchased. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. 
I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Even if it means I have no reputation in the eyes of my peers, that, that doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. People think I'm stupid or somehow don't have a brain because I believe in God. It doesn't matter to me what anybody thinks right now. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. My life has been given over to him. Friends and relatives will say to you, why are you doing this? You'll never make any money doing this kind of stuff. You'll never make any money by, by uh, going to Bible school and this kind of thing. I'm doing it because the Lord is telling me to do it. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. My life is not my own. I can't take my talents, my skills, or my abilities and use them for myself. They belong to someone else. I belong to someone else.